When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I didn't tell you this, Rebecca, but this oh, is no. episode 400. <gasps> Confetti falls from the sky. Of the Book Riot podcast, which is not true. We did some half episodes, drop-ins, other things like that. But in there, in the course of our standing numbering system, this is... 400, and because I made a typo in, my, my audio <laughs> recorder says it's number 4,000. It only feels Great. like 4,000. Um, <laughs> only another 40 years to do <laughs> Only another 40 years. <laughs> or more than that. To go. Yeah. By the end of this year, that's 40 years away, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I'm glad that we we were just having like an all-hands donut hangout yes. on Zoom with the company. I should have said. glad that I am eating my confetti sprinkle donut to celebrate 400 episodes well anyway thanks to everyone for listening i know every now and again someone comes maybe there's someone who started three months ago and they're on like episode 287 but i I hear you when you get to this i I see you i'm there with you like walt woman says i am i am there with you um as he was looking at brooklyn ferry man if you're back in episode 200 and something we're so innocent then we don't know what's happening. Like yeah. what's gonna what's coming for us. That must be nice for past. Right. We were just we were just arguing that ebooks were real books back then. Right. I think right. that's the, the horse that we were riding into the into the, the future. Um all right. Well let's do a sponsor break in honor of episode four hundred. Let's make sure we can get to keep doing more of them <laughs> and then we'll come back. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Team. In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate, and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes. There's one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. And the Aura sisters are no exceptions. There is Eo, the youngest, who uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator, but her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women and setting the resulting wraiths loose in the city to kill. Now, the second book in the series, Hearts That Cut, will be on sale June 18th, 2024. This is a must-read for all Greek mythology and fantasy fans. This is dripping with atmosphere, edge with danger. Threads That Bind weaves together a gorgeous dark tapestry of mystery, fated romance, and modern myth. You won't be able to put this one down. And that comes from Alexander Bracken, New York Times bestselling author of Lore. So make sure to pick up Threads That Bind by Kitsa Hatsapolu. And thanks again to Penguin Teen for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Abachan died, 
Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. Got some follow-up to do. One is, I'm not sure, this person didn't give permission to, to include their name, so I, I, I didn't, I'm not going to. But on the PRH buying Simon & Schuster ancillary things, would it be bad, so on and so forth. Um, this person said, well, they're a PRH author, and PRH just made a move to extend the payment terms into. It used to be book, broken up into three: an advance mm. publication date, then I think another one six months after. Now they're breaking up into four, and the fourth one comes a year after publication date. And again, that's the kind of thing where if you make your money writing books and mostly from uh, advances, which frankly most people do, that's mm. the advance is all they're going to get split up. And when you get it a year after the book comes out, hard to call it an advance, I guess, um, yeah. at that regard. But I think pointing out that it isn't just consumer facing um, mm-hmm. the th- changes that might be made that PRH being fewer a monopsony is when there's only one buyer versus only one seller I guess I learned this thing a while ago I can be an internet jackass to know just a, just enough to make myself seem insufferable which hey welcome to the podcast but <laughs> it is one of those situations where there are there are things that your normal rank and file readers, and I, I'd, I'd throw our lot within those. Like we, we mm-hmm. think much more from the reader's point of view than the author's point of view. That if Random House has more power, they're going to do things that you do with power, even if in the wider, the great, the great war with the big A, maybe we're not going to see that as much. So that, I thought that was a point well taken. Yeah, I often don't think of it about those points. Um, so thanks for writing with that. We had another note. I want to do um, something. We got some feedback that I thought was um, welcome. A change or, you know, a, an intentionality I think we want to deploy as much as we can of when we're talking especially about a deeply reported piece um, that we want to make sure we shout out the author's name of that piece. We're, we've always been good. I, I've, we both cared from the very beginning of making sure we have links so you can go find out. They can get the, the Google juice from the link appearing on our site and, you know, pointing the readers out if they want to find it. But sometimes, oftentimes, we... Uh, we glide over that and talking about the content of the post. So for this one, we want to shout out um, the piece on Liberation Station um, by Cynthia Greenlee is the author there. Um, really well done there. And we're going we're gonna to make an effort for to shout the names out to and include the link. And, you know, it, we get a variety of sources. We talk like, well, just as an example, that was an email from someone who I don't know if they could use their name. Sometimes we hear rumors. Sometimes we say things like we saw a tweet. Sometimes like this next story, the big story, well, there's several big stories <laughs> that aren't, they're news, but the author, they're just relaying information. So I don't know. We're going to find a, we're going to find a balance between doing a end notes, bibliography situation, but also give and shine, where that shine maybe could go a little extra distance. So I want to make sure we did that. So that's Dr. Cynthia Greenlee, who wrote the piece um, about Liberation Station. Other follow-up? I'm trying to see if there's anything. I don't, I don't think I have any other follow-up at this point. Um, we're not going to talk about it, but um, the, uh, the Man Booker shortlist came out, uh, and uh, Brandon Taylor's Real Life 
is I think mm-hmm. the horse we're most interested in now. Um, I have it on my nightstand right now, and I'm about 50 pages into it. So you can check that out as well. Kylie Reed, the other book we stand for this year, did not make uh, the, the shortlist cut at this point. I'm impressed that you start at the Brandon Taylor and then still came to work today because I had the experience starting it on like a Saturday morning and then being like, well, I guess this is what I'm doing today. (laughs) Well, listen, I don't know what it says about me, but in the middle of the wildfires here, I picked up this new book, which was awesome to listen to about the reporting on Hiroshima that John Hersey did. The book's called Fallout. And it is, I mean, it's about the New Yorker, it's about reporting, censorship, it's an incredible book, but I'm reading about Hiroshima uh, in uh, the wildfire, so I guess I'm just going there, right? If I'm there, I'm there. Lean in, friend. Can I give a a dad book recommendation while we're here? I mean, yes. I mean, you don't need to ask permission for that. (laughs) It's too late for moms, dads, and grads, but I Mm. feel like... Anytime is the time for a good dad book. I have just finished um, The Alchemy of Us oh, by you mentioned Lisa this. Ramirez. Yeah, I made it like five pages into that before I started texting you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called The Alchemy of Us. It is a history of major inventions that changed culture, but then how also culture shaped them and sort of mm. that back and forth between them. So mm. you get like... Uh, how the telegraph, like how and why the telegraph was invented, and then ways that culture changed in response to having the telegraph as a thing that the culture could use. Mm. And that, like, you know, one of the outgrowths of that was like the people came to expect to get news much faster. So, like, you can trace the hunger that we have now for like the 24 hour news cycle sort of back to the telegraph being developed and people being able to get news within a day or two of the news happening, if not sooner than that, rather than having to wait like weeks and weeks for letters to get delivered. Delivered. And mm. a whole bunch of other stuff. It like it scratched that Stephen Johnson kind of like pop science itch. It feels like a cousin book to how we got to now. But Ramirez's writing um, is, I think, much more deeply mm. researched, or maybe not more deeply de- researched. But there's like a broader sort of academic and cultural perspective mm. that she's bringing. And it's a science culture book written by a woman of color, which is not a thing that we get nearly enough yeah. of. Um, yeah. I'm really, really loving it. Um, I'll throw one back at you then while we're doing this. I know you're going to like this one because, well, you just will. I wish they had called it a history of the world in 10 firsts, but it's not. But that's what it is. It's called Who Ate the First Oyster by Cody Cassidy. I have that, but I haven't opened it. And each chapter is like, who did, how did this thing, who, who, who ate the first oyster? Who invented inventions, which made my brain, as you know, that kind of meta (laughs) stuff really, really does some work for me. Uh, let's see, I'm trying, who first discovered the Americas? As you know, that's, what does discovery mean? Who, how do we mm-hmm. think about it in the West? Who performed the first surgery? Who rode the first horse? Who invented the wheel? Um, who was the murderer in the first murder mystery? Which I thought was oh, interesting. Kind of a, that is interesting. Kind of thinking about the cultural history of, you know, a, as a kind of a psychological uh, key to understanding what people are thinking about, to think about who is doing the murdering and who is getting murdered in murder mystery. I just really liked it. Each chapter is like 15 or 20 minutes. I think it scratches that Stephen Johnson, uh, mm-hmm. how we got to now kind of a vibe. Um, it's it's a little more, I mean, Stephen Johnson isn't heavy, but this is a little more fun, as you can even see in the framing, who ate the first source. They're the extraordinary people behind the greatest first in history by Cody Cassie. So there you go. A couple of recommendations to get Today us in Dad Books. This is the, it'll be a segment that ultimately leads to its own podcast. I've heard worse ideas. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. 
Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? Right, girl, like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series, Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santángel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. I think we're procrastinating to some degree because there is so much news that happened this morning that we don't quite have our head wrapped around it, frankly. Um, I I guess the one where we want to say, go read this. And do you have the, I don't even have the the essay in front of me, the Vanity Fair piece. Um, What's the name of it and who's the author? And we'll put it in the show notes. Give me the pressy about it. Maybe we'll read it and talk yeah. about it next week. But I haven't looked at it all except for your eyes emoji reactions. Oh, boy. Yeah, the biggest eyes emoji. Uh, the piece is published in Vanity Fair. It's called Skyhorse Publishing's House of Horrors. And it's by Kezia Weir. And just let me read you the first two sentences. <laughs> what do Woody Allen, Roger Stone, Thimerosal, and adult coloring books have in common? It sounds like the kind of dystopian crack that should only have a punchline. And yet there is an answer, and the answer is Skyhorse Publishing. Skyhorse, and I think we've talked about this as we've talked about some of these other issues in books, has taken on, I assume this, the piece goes into it, I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to reading it through, through my fingers, but they seem willing to take on the titles that uh, publishers hire in the ecosystem, jettison late in the process, because it wasn't worth it to them economically, morally, whatever, you know, culturally, mm-hmm. PR wise. And Skyhorse is like, you know what? There might be some sales there, so we'll go ahead and put it out. So that that seems and boy, that's a group of that, yeah. that's a group of authors I don't want to be <laughs> associated with. There's yeah. I made it a, maybe like twenty five percent through the mm-hmm. piece. Um, like it did it just dropped like an hour ago. Um before we started prepping for this call and 
it, there's a lot of like the author of the piece and um, Kezia Weir did got great interviews with a lot of people mm. um, and there are a lot of folks from inside Skyhorse really patting themselves on the back for like being brave enough to tell both sides of the story and mm. um, or as one of our coworkers said I expected it to be bad and it was even worse <laughs> So yeah, I, I'm going to maybe need my friend Jack Daniels to keep me company oh, when yeah. I read that later this evening. Right. Um, but it's uh, it's a big, long, juicy publishing piece. And like not for nothing, you don't see big inside stories about the world of publishing break into major no, mainstream publications like Vanity Fair or make it to like the regular sections of the New York Times very often. So this is a big deal. Um, I'm excited to read the rest of it also like grimacing and looking through my fingers and and i hope it you know some of it has signaled to me i think we're coming to maybe the beginning of the end of this thing about needing to tell all sides of a story and justifying making money off of despicable things in that way yeah it's i think this piece is especially well timed because the biggest one of these bottom feeding fish has come to the surface in the form of michael cohen's disloyal right Mm -hmm. which is a skyhorse title and selling you know, I keep thinking we're at the peak with the Mary Trump book, but I think this book is selling even more. I keep thinking it can't get any juicier. And then Michael Cohen, I, I really don't want to talk about the details there. And I really don't. But mm-hmm. like some of the things you've heard that are rumor and myth and whispers, um, Cohen says are true and was in a position to know. And I don't know if who, who and why and wherefore you would trust him, except why not at this, at this <laughs> point? And he's going to make a lot of money off of it. But is the the highest profile of these books to get. I think the Woody Allen memoir was kind of before, but uh, I mean, Woody Allen is, he's not in the zeitgeist anymore. Cohen very much is. And in the mm-hmm. grand history of whatever's going to be written about this time with this person in the White House, Cohen is like, you know, he's one of those names you're going to know, like from the Watergate, you know, like, like, uh, you yeah. know, um, although all I can't think of the uh, McGovern and, um, Dean and, you know, all those kind of people that go in and maybe the closest of the close. Um, so yeah, go check that piece out. We might look at it and see if there's anything that's worth diving into a little bit more, I guess, related to those kinds of books, you know, intersection of a couple of interests of our one as these, the cavalcade of cashing in on, um, the dirt you've seen and participated in John Bolton's, the room where it happened, we talked to before, meddling interference on the part of the White House, and now the federal government, insofar as the Department of Justice is weighing potential criminal charges against John Bolton over his best-selling memoir, The Room Where It Happened. This is a piece by Andrew Albanese in Publishers Weekly. Um, repeatedly insisted that Bolton has broken the law, uh, and, and President Trump tweeted that Bolton should be in jail. Uh, I guess... Anyway, there's a lot in here. I don't know exactly mm-hmm. where in the piece. You know, what, what's actually being um, objected to as revealing state secrets? I'd, I'd be actually very interested in, in knowing and looking at the specific ones as someone who cares about freedom of speech and actual censorship. And this is a very good criminal charges against you is an attempt to... Is it censorship if you broke extending law? Is the law good or bad? I don't know. But it very much is a case of the government being interested in information not being out there and using the force of law and the resources of the Department of Justice um, to do so. 
So we'll watch that with interest, um, I think, as this uh, as this goes forward. I'm not sure there's much else to say there, except I kind of thought this was over. I, when we had yeah. talked about it before, I thought once the book had come out, that maybe they were going to try to claw back some um, royalties or something, and they kind of let that go. And this is an escalation rather than a settlement uh, in a lot of different ways. So there we are. Yeah, the civil case against him is also continuing, yeah, um, right. where the government is trying to seize the royalties and his reported $2 million advance. So, mm-hmm. um, Let's see. I, oh, you know what? You did put the, the link to the Booker shortlist in there. I'm sorry. I, I lighted that. It's a, well, let's look, we'll talk yeah. about them at the end, because that's kind of a good yeah. story. That's our one. Well, maybe we have a couple of good stories we can save towards the end, too. Uh, let's see. So we did that. We did that. I guess the next... Well... <laughs> We got two. We've got one and one A for the lead stories. I think um, when it actually comes, like Skyhorse is a dishy tea spilling story, but Skyhorse is a relatively small player as these things go. Um, what is not a small player? Let's, I guess we'll go by title, right? Cohen disloyal is a big title from a small player. A big title from a big author, air quotes, um, <laughs> from the largest of all publishers coming out. On November 17th, it is Barack Obama's memoir, A Promised Land. And I'm looking at the, I'm getting choked oh. up looking at the, what is, look. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what you want to call me, coastal elite, educated jerk, all those things apply. But whatever the, vi- and I kind of want to do a close reading of the cover of this in here in just a minute, because I think it's important, actually, in the framing of what this book is going to be, but also the the ongoing mm. masterclass the Obamas are putting on in PR, branding, and image. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a 700-page book, um, first printing of 3 million copies, um, as, as we've as we talked about before, as part of the Obama's joint enormous $65 million advanced books books deal um and i think this is going to be the first of a couple it, yes. i don't know is that explicitly stated in this piece yeah this it's piece? A, it's the first of two volumes of his presidential memoirs yeah um bylined by elizabeth harris in the new york times um here's i don't think we've caught up on the becoming stats here 8.1 million units of becoming in the united mm-hmm. States, canada alone um and it doesn't look like they've overpaid 8.51 million units. I guess if you, I wonder what their average selling price is in there. Call it 15 bucks, I guess, across. That's not an unreasonable thing. You're looking at $120 million gross at a 50% margin. That's 60 right there. 60 right mm-hmm. there, maybe? I mean, that's not marketing expenses and everything else, illegal yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But that's one book in with um, a promised land to come. Yeah, going to be really interesting. You know, a thing that happens when a publisher announces a crash publication like this, like, you know, it's two months from today that this book is coming out is all the booksellers are scrambling to get their pre-order pages ready. And as of like earlier this morning, the Amazon page had the cover for the memoir, but they had the wrong date. They didn't have the audible option up yet. Like everything is really just getting done today as this announcement is being made. And it will be very interesting in the next week or so coming weeks to see if additional printings get announced quickly because 
pre-orders account will account for, you know, a bunch of these 3 million copies. Um, if you can sell them in advance, you can go back for your next printing before the book even comes out. Um, one of the things that we were noodling about on the staff Slack this morning is like, okay, what else? Like I said something like, well, how many weird negotiations did PRH have to go through to ensure that they could print this book on short notice mm -hmm. and have it out by November 17th, given what's going on with printers right now? And there is actually a paragraph in this piece that says that demand for the book is expected to be extraordinary. And Crown, which is the imprint of PRH that's publishing it, has ordered of these 3 million copies – a million of them are being printed in Germany and Crown has arranged for three ships that are outfitted with 112 shipping containers to bring them to the U.S. So like that is one of the things that's going on with um, having to print a big book like this in a time of high demand and yeah. troubled supply. <laughs> wow. Super interesting. Man, I'm so ready. I'm going to listen to this on audio. It's 32 hours long and I'm looking forward to those 32 hours. <laughs> We'll put a link to the show notes, and you're going to need to look at it if you want to make any sense of the two minutes of discursion I'm about to do on the cover uh, design. I can't I'm help ready. I can't help but think of it as a contrast to Shepard Ferry's iconic Hope poster as part of the original 2008 campaign. Mm -hmm. um, I used to use that in the class I, I taught on. Um, the course was called America as Idea, and we did a close reading of that poster and talked about the various things that are going on here. And what's being conveyed in the title of Promised Land? Um, and then in Obama's visage, where he's looking, how he's looking, it's in black and white, um, which is interesting. He's not wearing a tie, but he is wearing an American flag pin. He's smiling, but looking down into the side. He's a notably grayer, of course. The, the gray, well, Shepard Ferry's Hope was, a, um, I think, a four-color print. Um, this is the kind of book you write when you're ready to start the monumentalizing process mm -hmm. in the kind of cover that you could cast a marble statue from the kind of visage. I mean, that's, that's what we're looking at, right? This is the, it looks like, it looks like a Richard Avedon portrait. Um, and I think the optimism still remains there. I think though the smiling and looking down with the promised land gives you a sense that even as Obama continues to be active, this is the decrescendo and a looking back, and the back is where the action was. And I think that's what I'm responding to as much as anything. It's like, oh, yeah, it's, it is, oh, I mean, it's oh, always has to be over. But his own recognition, even if the recognition is pretty winning and optimistic, is the part that remains is the memorialization, which is fascinating and, and important. Yeah, I'm really interested in the title as mm -hmm. well. That I think it's significant that it's a promised land and not the promised mm -hmm. land. Uh, that I'm sure that there was thought given to what to title this book. I don't know if you know Barack Obama spent time waffling between a oh, promised I land and, be and I believe B. it a thousand percent <laughs> promised land, but it's meaningful. It's a meaningful mm -hmm. distinction, and it sets his philosophy apart from one of the common ways that we're hearing the country talked about yeah. or that we're used to hearing America talked about is like the best nation on earth, whatever, the one place, you know, the one place that you can go, the promised land. And he, I think his Obama's a thinker that is capable of holding a, mm -hmm. a, several competing and different ideas at the same time. And 
I've always appreciated his ability to look at at the promise of America and the promise of what democracy is intended to be and what it could be, but also the realities of how that's been exercised unequally and oppressively, very harmfully against many people for the last 400 years. Um, and I expect some, you know, reckoning with yeah. that as well. Um, how do you reflect? How do you reflect on? your legacy after eight years of a presidency when the legacy is, you know, that work is followed by the kind of response that it was followed by. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and the last four years that we've experienced, like I'm also just kind of jaw on the floor that the book is going to come out right after the election that he wasn't like, yo, let me wait until we know which way this goes and at least be able to comment on that. <laughs> You know, I but think I it makes that's sense. That's what the second I, volume is for. I think it makes sense. If you're casting in marble, you don't care about tomorrow's weather. Mm. You don't. I mean, I, I think that's what's going on here. And I think the careful, uh, the studiedness of his informality, I think, is on display here in a lot of different ways. One is the posture, one is the clothing, one is the pin. Yeah. But also fully aware, um, almost a Changian, a master Changian moment of like playing with I know the thing that I'm doing, but also, do you know that I know that you know? I mean, how much mm -hmm. of that, again, you haven't heard us talk about Eat a Peach yet because we recorded <laughs> yesterday. It's coming out next week. Um, but a promised land implies a Moses, you know, and like, it may not the Moses, but a Moses. And that's the kind of biblical monumentalizing, as why I use that phrase interestingly. And this is what, pres I, I that's would what do this do. if I were. I mean, you don't run for president if you aren't each wondering about legacy eventually down the road. I'm sorry, even for um, the great Obama in my estimation. So really looking forward to it. As again, all the same questions I think about the Obama books are going to be are going to be held true until they aren't for some reason or they become obsolete, which is how forthcoming is forthcoming? How much is on the bone here? I mean, there's a lot of words. How wonky is it? How revelatory mm. is it? How emotional is it? How personal is it? There's 768 pages to write about a week in a presidential administration <laughs> if you want to West Wing it. Um, but this, I'll be very curious to see, right? That the title is not my life, my term. It is Sort of, out, it's external looking to the to to the place, which is mm -hmm. interesting. Um, so you would think it's something other than merely merely a memoir. <laughs> My days in the White House, right? Me right. in the White mm -hmm. House. That sort of circum to circumscribe the experience. This is a broad vision of whatever this you know whatever the mm -hmm. the um, territory is here. So. Uh, I've tried to provide an honest accounting of my presidential campaign in my time in office. Key events and people who shaped it, my take on what I got right and the mistakes I made, and the political, economic, and cultural forces that my team had to confront then, and that as a nation we are grip grappling with still. I guess if I'm looking for a description of what I want this book to be, that's pretty damn close to what I want, I think, Rebecca. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, that's exactly what I want. Yeah. That, you know, and, and I've... I've read all the Obama administration memoirs, <laughs> like mm -hmm. all the staffer memoirs, and that team seems to have been united with yeah. an intention to, you know, honestly reflect upon mistakes, to have an honest also understanding of the things that made them successful when they were successful, and to try to see the whole board. It seems like a true teamwork kind of situation. Mm -hmm. Not that other presidents didn't, d didn't and don't work in teams, but I'm 
I guess I'm not surprised that the Obama take on presidential memoir at least appears from the cover and the original positioning to be about the bigger story and right not just like an Obama my life kind yeah. of situation that it's about the country that it's about his hopes for the country and the work being done for the country and this you know this bigger picture um, yeah and in terms of like how candid will it be you know like I was like does this mean he's gonna have a will there be a speaking tour where he's like a little bit more candid and then there will be a Netflix documentary where he's even more candid than that and then is Obama gonna have a podcast like will he follow the the Michelle arc yeah. which you know her podcast has turned out to be really wonderful and and there's an episode with her brother that I just listened to where he recounts talking to Barack at an like early in um, when Michelle and Barack Obama were dating and them being at like it's like a family dinner situation and Craig is you know like off in the kitchen talking to Barack and asking him like so this politics thing what are you thinking about like what do you want to do with it Barack's like I don't know you know maybe get into public office at some point I might like I don't know and and Craig is like oh do you mean like run for mayor <laughs> and he's like mm. no man like maybe maybe senate or maybe the president and Craig was like don't say that too loud <laughs> You know, like, don't... It's not the kind of thing you want to hear a 28-year-old to say weirdly, yeah, right? Right, right. Like End vision. of any stripe, you know? Like, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. No. But yeah. that that vision seems mm. to sort of have been, you know, baked into the Barack Obama pie from the very beginning, that way of seeing, trying to see the big picture and contribute to the big vision. And um, it sounds like the book is going to go to that. Man, I, I hope that I'm like in a very happy place when I'm listening to this on November 17th. But I feel comforted by the knowledge that even if I'm not, like dad is going to talk to me for 32 hours. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely interested in the book. I haven't decided if I'm going to do in print and audio at this point. But I think th this is the kind of nerd that I am, that I'm definitely interested in the book and the text itself. But the ancillary uh, content around the book, I want the um, Planet Money podcast episode about the German shipping containers. Yes. Like, how did... Why Germany? Are they all at once? Is it like a flotilla? Is like does that fill on one boat? Is it like a reverse D-Day situation uh, of books coming from Germany? Uh, I don't know. I, I've never. I mean, I guess but, I like, realize that a bunch of stuff comes over the Atlantic, but I've never thought this many books in a constrained time. That's why they're being printed mm -hmm. in Germany, as we've talked about before. The printers here are struggling. I believe is the word we would use. But like the the actual logistics of yeah. books. As, as listeners of this show and annotated know, really fascinates me. I've rarely thought about it, the scale of this and the depressed... And it's it's a hefty book itself, right? Like, I'm sure these are very... Mm -hmm. These are heavy, high-quality uh, books here. So, anyway, um, here's the question. I guess we, this is a half-baked idea that I don't think I've previewed yet. Um, or did we talk about the, the idea of scoreboard, the social network where you, you're, you just make your predictions and people can tell if you're someone you should listen to about predictions or not? <laughs> I it's just like that yeah, because I think this is one we should put on. Maybe we could start it for ourselves. So, given so t on day and date, two years after release, will a becoming sold more, or will a promised land have sold more? Do you think? Oh, I'm putting my money on becoming. I, I yeah, believe I think, that I think Michelle you're Obama right. has much wider appeal than a potentially wonky, as much as I love him, president. Yeah. <laughs> do you think? I wonder about internationally. Or or the mm. long term, like, is this the kind of thing that will people be as interested in becoming in 25 years as I think they'll still be interested in the blow by blow of the white? I, I don't know. I'm just wondering about that. I wonder yeah. if there's a shape that's different. I, the, I would believe that the long tail mm -hmm. of the Obama presidential memoir 
is a longer long tail than becoming's probably but in the near like you know next five years kind of situation yeah. Yeah. i think michelle's winning yeah, I think that I, I think it makes sense. It's it's much more book book clubable becoming, right? I think there's there's that piece of it too. It's it's more reader friendly and yeah, not as dense more, theoretically, not as long. Accessible, certainly. Yeah. yeah, it's more accessible than a seven hundred and sixty eight page yeah. book that's the first of two volumes that is sort of undoubtedly going to have some policy and global, mm. you know, like po- global policy and wonky kinds of stuff in there. I think you have to be interested in politics and history for yeah. the Obama book in a way that you don't have to be for yeah. Michelle Obama's. Yeah, yeah. He's going to read the audiobook, of course. It would be a huge mistake not to do it. Um, interesting, some backlist publishing numbers. The Audacity of Hope, published in 2006, sold more than 4.2 million copies. Interesting anecdote here that Peter Osnos, who acquired his first book, Dreams of My Father, for $40,000 in 1995. Right? Wow. Obama has a multi-decade track record here, but he said the the contract was canceled because Obama missed his deadlines. So they had to write something else later, um, which is a good transition to our next... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I say, I think there are stories about like to finish one of his books, he had to like go to Fiji and like, yeah. sit on an island by himself to get it done. Yeah. Well, there are demands on his time. You know, he's got... I find it hard when my kids are help, try, ask me to figure out their Zoom, and that's the demand on my time. I'm sure the the push-me-pull-you um, of Barack Obama's uh, daily life is uh, considerably more interrupted than that. I guess related to while we're in um, contract talk, mm-hmm. I don't know why I like these stories so much. <laughs> well, you don't hear them that often, I guess, is why, you know, we, we were talking about the Patrick Rothfuss of, like, what mm-hmm. would you, when would you ever uh, uh, try to get in advance back? If you ever think the book is going to come out and it still has any value, you probably would never sue, right? Well, in this case, I think HarperCollins uh, is signaling that they do not think that Lindsay Lohan's book is ever going to come out. So they are going to sue to try to collect her $365,000 advance. So the book was originally due, wait for it, people, (laughs) May 1st, 2015. This is a piece in USA Today by Charles Trapani. Um, links in the show notes as always, bookriot.com slash listen. And it's five years, five years plus later. Maybe, you know, maybe it's not, it's not going to happen. Maybe it's not going to happen. Yeah. I wonder if I could just be latching onto this five years as like a round number, right. but I wonder if there are rules of thumb or sort of mm. you know, un, unwritten, but like policies that people abide by inside yeah. publishing houses of like how overdue does a book need to be before it becomes worth chasing down the advance and also how big does the advance need to have been for it to be mm-hmm. worth getting it right. back like Great point. i can't imagine that if it's your you know like your average lit fic like a debut literary novel situation mm. and it was somewhere in the 10 to $40,000 range like that the legal fees that would be involved in tra- in like trying to get the money back would even be worth it yeah. at that point. But when you're talking about $365,000 and it's a celebrity and the book is more than five years overdue and no, definitely no longer relevant. I was like going to say it's a depreciating Lohan, asset, right? At that point. Yeah. You know, whatever she was doing in 2015, we are not interested in it 
anymore. Um, it's a whole new world, Lindsay Lohan. That uh, it, I think it is just interesting to see this happen mm. because it doesn't happen very often. And I specifically put it on the agenda for the show because it stood in contrast to the Rothfuss situation. Mm-hmm. Of just like, you know, maybe Lindsay Lohan's editor is also ranting on Facebook somewhere and we're just not seeing it. Yeah, yeah. You know, Lindsay Lohan's had a tough time. I guess I'm not surprised that it didn't happen. Um, all the things that have gone on seem to have gone on in her life over the last, mm-hmm. well, ever, um, from what I know. So you don't like to see that, but it does happen every now and again. And frankly, if you don't deliver the book, you should have to give your advance back. I mean, call me old-fashioned, I guess, but it uh, seems reasonable to me that if you miss your deadline by five years, um, you haven't delivered your uh, end of the bargain there. Wow, wow, wow. Let's take a quick break. Um, there's more. Okay, this is a big deal. John Sargent mm-hmm. leaving Macmillan, uh, bylined by Jim Milliot in uh, Publishers Weekly, broken a lot of different places all at once. It was a surprise announcement, so there's not a whole lot here except for a statement from Holtzbrink, which is Macmillan's parent company, um, and an unusual forthrightness, I would yeah. say, in the verbiage around the departure of a leading executive Um the family shareholders, which is, it's weird, Holtzbrink is a family business, largely. The supervisory board, this is by, um, who is this? Stefan Van Holtzbrink. Van, Van Holtzbrink, the, of the family. The supervisory board, my colleagues and I thank John Sargent deeply for make, make, making Macmillan a strong and highly successful publishing house and for his most helpful advice. Um, John's principles and exemplary leadership have always been grounded in worthy essential causes, be it freedom of speech, the environment, or support for the most vulnerable But the haymaker was. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. 
Ella assures her that she's fine. Partying hard is what it takes. But with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for new talent for We Deserve Monuments. And We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes and Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023. So suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. The reasons given, disagreements about how to run the company. Most of the time, this is a sunset. I want to spend more time with my family, moving on mm-hmm. to, to follow other pursuits. And I don't know much about John Sargent except what we've seen through the news um, in with Macmillan and the libraries. Um, I thought the move of late where they established a, a, a diversity, a more diverse advisory board than the upper management, I guess, represented. Mm-hmm. Those seem to me like maybe he, he how much this decision making was his alone, got some stuff wrong, then came back on it. This suggests to me that he was maybe dragged over the finish line and it's time to go, but I'm just reading into it here, Rebecca. Is that fair? What's your take yeah, on this? Yeah, I mean, we don't have concrete information about it yet mm-hmm. if we ever are going to get it. I suspect as we were sort of speculating about it off the show that one of the reasons that this is even in the Holtzbrink statement, this acknowledgement that Sargent is leaving because of disagreements regarding the direction the company is taking is that perhaps there's been an indication from John Sargent that he intends to talk about these things. Yeah, right. Uh, and so they were like, let's get out in front of it and acknowledge that this is what's going on up front. Um, so we can only speculate, but the things that have happened in McMillan in the last year, as are noted at the bottom of this PW piece, are you know this long-running saga about the ebook embargo. Then there was the major, major controversy about American Dirt, mm-hmm. which um, Flatiron is an imprint of McMillan, and they they dragged their feet to mm-hmm. address and acknowledge that. Um, then a slew of layoffs uh, here as the pandemic began. And then there was the industry-wide day of protest several months back that was originally organized by a group of Macmillan employees. And so all of those things happened while Sargent was CEO. And we know that he was very involved in the ebook embargo mm-hmm. stuff because we've you know, seen reporting of him talking to librarians about it and trying to like bring them around to his side. So it seems like it's in the tea leaves that... Um, the company is going in this direction uh, that, you know, they addressed American dirt ultimately in the way that they did um, and that there are big active moves to make the company more diverse and more inclusive um, really a, a disappointing. If that's the case that he had to be yeah. dragged across the finish line for that and is choosing to leave and doesn't want to participate. Um, but I guess I wouldn't be surprised that that's a story that it's a thing that happens in big companies in all kinds of industries and small companies like, you know, it's a thing that happens everywhere. Um, will be very interesting to see if like this time next week, we've had some sort of statement from John Sargent or if he's come out, you know, spilling his own tea about what's going on. But from what we have right now, it does seem that things are pointing in that direction of like change is happening in Macmillan and Sargent is not on board with at least some of those changes. Yeah, I guess we should, I should at least hold in my mind the possibility that the changes we see, you and I kind of like about mm-hmm. going on at McMillan, maybe those are things that Sargent initiated and the Holtzbring family doesn't, I mean, that's entirely possible, right? There are, mm. these are giant corporations um, and giant corporations and families with inherited and long-term wealth tend to lean a certain way on the whole. I don't want to get more specific than that. But I think it's possible that maybe Sargent was, maybe he was spearheading some of the stuff and he got his head cut. I mean, 
that's possible, right, Rebecca? I, I think it's it possible. I don't know if it's likely, but it's certainly possible. Yeah, it seems, you know, it does seem possible um, because some of the recent policies have been more progressive. And there is that bit in the statement from Stefan von Holtzbrink about uh, principles and exemplary leadership and essential causes like freedom of speech, the environment and support for the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And it really depends on, I guess, who you think falls into that category of most vulnerable and it doesn't say inclusion. It doesn't say diversity. I mean, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. you could have an interesting afternoon trying to close read yeah. <laughs> this this statement, but there's really only room to speculate. You know, yeah. I I hope that this statement is an indication that we're going to hear from Sargent because I'm very curious about mm-hmm. um, what the source of this is, and like as a person who cares about people but also cares about the future of the industry, like I would value knowing. Is right. it, was, was he the problem or is the company the problem not wanting to actually like get on board yeah. with these progressive concerns? Um, so I, I certainly hope that we'll, you know, get that. Who knows what kinds of NDAs are in place, mm. but it seems like this is hinting at like, we're going to say something before he can say something. Yeah. So. Well, and it's also very possible too that um, I guess it's availability bias, right? That we're thinking the things we've seen McMillan do in public mm-hmm. as the subject of this, where it could be, much more boring about corporate structure or, you know, rights or, you know, it could be a whole bunch of stuff that go into making a publisher. So it may be differently staked than we are reading into it, but we're juicing it up a little bit because it's fascinating. And he has been at the top of the most sort of tumultuous of the big five publishers over the Mm -hmm. last year. So I guess we're curious, um, bordering on the voyeuristic when it comes to what's going on here. Um, I'll speak for yeah. myself, at least. I'm feeling yeah, no, I think that's, that. a, it, that's a fair categorization yeah. of it, that it's, it is totally possible, as you're saying, that this could be about more boring things. It could be about policy changes that Holtzbrink mm-hmm. has announced or has proposed internally that we don't know about yet, but that Sargent doesn't want to go along with. Like, it could really mean a lot of things. And all we have to you know, hang our guessing on yeah. is what we've heard about over the last couple of years. Right. Um, quickly, another piece by Zoe Christians and Jones and Publishers Weekly, a follow-on, follow-up. I don't know if Publishers Weekly has them all lined up to do the diversity inclusion reports from the big five publishers. We got PRHs that we talked about. Hachette's next in line. I, I don't sure there's too much to say about it. It's, it's in line with what you might mm-hmm. expect. You can go dive into it there. But um, let's mentally bookmark these, everyone, um, as we go forward into the future uh, and see how they do. So the link in the show notes for you to check that out there. I'm cognizant of time, so I'm, I'm moving along here <laughs> a little bit. Um, again, and maybe relate. So St. Martin's is Macmillan. 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 Mm-hmm. I should have bridged off the other story. Quick, a quick blurb um, that Monique Patterson has been promoted to the newly created position of VP and editorial director of acquisition outreach at St. Martin's Publishing Group, which is one of the largest imprints uh, at. Um, Macmillan, and I think St. Martin's is in the upper echelon of print imprints, right? When it comes yes. to clout uh, all the way around, publish all kinds of titles across genres and formats, oversee initiatives dedicated to increasing diversity in the St. Martin's Publishing Group's list, including publishing more authors from underrepresented communities, and will continue to acquire titles in the area of general commercial fiction and nonfiction. So not just, so it's actually about acquiring titles, but also initiatives, Mm-hmm. I don't mean that sarcastically because that's, this can take any number of range of things um, they want to do. She served as the inaugural co-chair for Women's Diversity and Inclusion Council. I guess that's the thing that was just created. Um, 
she will report to president publisher of St. Margin's Publishing Group, Alexandra Sehulster. Wow, that's a name I've not seen before. I know she's reporting to Jennifer Enderlin. Oh, Enderlin. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, she has five reports. Is that what I'm... Am I reading this? Report to Jennifer Enderlin, (laughs) Alexandra Sehulster, Sylvan Creekmore, and Mara Delgado Sanchez. Oh, We'll, we'll report to her. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. She's got wonder. Okay. I got you. I'm that <laughs> serial comma. I was parsing yeah. that incorrectly on the fly there. Again, this is the kind of thing we probably needed. Well, forever ago, but in the, maybe the mm-hmm. earlier wave of inclusion becoming a top tier line in publishing because of black lives matter, the movement that's happened this summer and the momentum um, happening up and down the line of corporations, especially in the arts, I would say. Glad to see this. Um, very glad to see this. Um, I'm not sure what else, Rebecca. That's good, right? Yeah. This is this is great. Yeah. This is great. It is good, yeah. good, and it's a good thing, and I'm happy to see it. And may your efforts succeed, Monique. Patterson. May your efforts succeed. Much as I'd be interested in the German flotilla of Obama books and how they get across, <laughs> like, does she have KPIs? Like, what do her spreadsheets look like? You know, I, mm. I do wonder about that. Not not in a critical way. I believe Monique Patterson knows way more about I ever will than how to make diversity inclusion happen in a publisher. But what does she think um, are the you know the 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 first the highest and best use of her time? And these efforts, because um, I think it's hard to know in a lot of ways uh, what to do. Yeah. Okay. Did we hit everything so far before the Booker? Was there anything else we, we were going to do? No, all I right. think we have rung all the bells. Talk to me about the Booker shortlist real quick, and then we'll, yeah, we'll get I out mean, of here. Very interestingly, uh, it's the most diverse Booker Prize shortlist that we've ever seen. And Hillary Mantel is not on it. Uh, which I think is a surprise. Uh, There are six finalists. Four of them are debut writers. Um, Interesting. We're noting the Hilary Mantel thing because it was very possible that she was going to win a third booker for the third book in her Mm. trilogy um, about Thomas Cromwell. And that's, you know, notable to, if you do win a booker for all three books (laughs) in this series. So on this list of six people, um, Four are writers of color. The four debut novelists are Diane Cook, Avani Doshi, Douglas Stewart, and Brandon Taylor, uh, whose real life we were talking about at the top of the show. And they are, uh, those debut writers are up against the acclaimed Zimbabwean Tsitsi Dangaremga and mm. the Ethiopian American person Maza Mengista. Um, mm. And it's a 50,000 pound award. Um, Glad to see this. You know, the Booker has also, I think, sort of dragged its feet a little bit in having a a diverse presentation of um, or a diverse representation of like really what's happening in the world of books and reading. And then last year they had that whole situation where they doubly awarded it to Bernadine Evaristo and Margaret Atwood at the same time. Uh, So hopefully they learned some lessons um, from that experience and are going forward on mm-hmm. a better foot. I don't know much about any of these other titles. Usually the Booker is um, a little bit more, you know, UK focused. Um, and this is a, you know, more um, American shortlist than we mm. usually see. Um, I'm definitely rooting for Brandon Taylor. Real life just bowled me over. Yeah, that's really great. I, one personal kind of note, I'm not sure that normal. I mean, most people don't know this writer. I don't think um, Stanley Crouch, who mm. was a critic, um, a jazz drummer, also a novelist, died this week at the age of 74. I knew him a little bit back in the day. Oh, uh, he, one, he one time paid me a very nice compliment that I will 
uh, keep private for the moment. But I was sad to see his passing a outspoken, I think is fair. I think combative is fair. Um, I think he got a lot of things right. Sometimes he got some things wrong. One thing I remember that he got right was, and this is early, I think in the 60s, he wrote in Jazz Times. Could have been that long ago. Yeah, maybe that, you know, that white jazz musicians were elevated more than was, you know, given their merits based on race Mm -hmm. than the the black jazz musicians that were as good or better than them. Um, They got fired from that position. Um, The article I remember is called The White Man in Charge, which even when I first looked at it when I was in my 20s, as with the political viewpoint I had right now, felt um, abrasive. And it turned out to be prescient and sadly I don't know. It's been a while since I've been in the jazz circles, following it pretty closely. But the truth of it got him fired, I think, is ultimately um, what happened there. Um, if you're interested, he, I, probably his collection of essays and reviews called Notes of a Hanging Judge, which are collected from things he did in the Amsterdam News and the New York Daily News, um, is really Im- Im- important, too. He was um, Wynton Marcellus's uh, – Wynton Marcellus called him his best friend at one point, Mm. and was hugely influential in the creation of jazz at Lincoln Center, was one of the primary critical consultants for Ken Burns' um, jazz series, which is, you know, one of the great documents on jazz. Some criticized it for being a little too focused on straight-ahead jazz. That's definitely, I think, a crouch influence, like standard um, traditional straight-ahead jazz is what he valued, for rightly or wrongly, but um, an interesting, very, very interesting guy. Um, and I'm, I was sad to see that he passed away. So, fare thee well, Stanley Crouch. Hmm. Okay. Well, that was a week, Jeff. That was a week. Um, the next episode is me and Rebecca talking about Eat a Peach by David Chang. Spoiler alert, we really liked it and got into it. That episode is coming out on Wednesday. Uh, mm-hmm. The back half of that episode, Jen Northington and I got into some uh, trailer breakdowns for the new adaptation of Dune. The trailer just came out. Um, I think you could listen to that little segment without having watched the trailer. But if you haven't, it might be fun to watch it beforehand. I, was, I, I called for it then, and I'll call for it now. If you don't know, if you don't have any really mental model of Dune, never read the book or seen one of the earlier adaptations or whatever, and watch the trailer before we talk about it especially, and you would like to email me what you think Dune is about at podcast at bookriot.com, <laughs> I would love to hear it. And I'll tip my hand no more. Honestly, I think Dune is just a takeoff of Tremors. I was going to say, do you have? I was my, my follow up. Do you have any pre existing relationship with Dune that all would I know the the, ju- they- the the lawyer would throw you out from the jury no, for having no, too much? All close I, to it. Yeah, all I know about Dune is like there are giant sandworms. Yeah. Okay. Fair. And in my brain, that also means that like Reba McIntyre is nearby with a shotgun. Well, never a bad idea <laughs> for Reba to be having your back with a uh, double barrel. Um, yeah. Anyway, pretty sure right. that's Tremors too. <laughs> uh, Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. Have a good one.